Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. It takes a special physician to practice in a population that's almost 100% indigent right here in America. Dr. Ann Brooks is just such a person. A Catholic nun and a physician, she started medical school at the age of 40 and upon graduation in 1983 moved to practice in rural Tutwiler, Mississippi, an underserved community on the Mississippi Delta. Dr. Brooks, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. Well, thank you, Gary. It's great to have you today, and I'd love to get some information about how you ended up in medicine relatively late in life. What was the inspiration behind taking up the profession? Well, you know, the inspiration was that I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when I was in my 20s and ended up wheelchair and told to lie down half a day and teach only half a day and crutches and all that jazz. And I ran into a DO who was organizing a free clinic in the town where I was teaching. I was trying to volunteer over there, and someone told him that I was having a lot of pain, and he had come back from an acupuncture course, and he was interested in trying his techniques on pain patients. And I said, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, no way. (laughs) But in the end, I caved in, and John Upledger and I became very good friends. One of the things that he did that was... I think very special, and as I have gotten older, I have appreciated it more and more, and that is to take me out of the mindset of being sick. So I'm, at this point, able to get around fine. Well, I mean, you know, creaks and groans when you're 72, you <laughs> you, <laughs> you grunt and groan, but generally I do well. I am very careful since I'm the CEO, I could make my own schedule, so I built time into the noon for me to take a nap every day. So I just take a little old power nap here every noon time and uh, keep going. So after going to medical school at Michigan State, I believe, you chose to practice in Mississippi, even though you're a native of Florida. How did you end up choosing that place to practice? Well, you know, nuns are always looking for people on the edge. And I had taught in inner city Tampa during the race riots. I was in Marathon Shores during the Cuban crisis, a a private white academy. And I had lots of experiences. And when I was getting ready to become a doctor, the ability to practice as a doctor when you have vows of poverty, celibacy, and obedience is a challenge. I said, how on earth do they do this? There are a lot of sister docs, actually. There's an organization that we have called the Association of Sister, Brother, and Priest Physicians. And there are probably a couple hundred of us in that group. And I, So I went around my fourth year of school and looked at other sister docs' practices. One was a pediatrician whose office was over a bar in West Virginia, (laughs) (laughs) practiced with some folks working with the migrants in Virginia, and wandered around the countryside, ending up in a little town called Marks, Mississippi, which is where the Poor People's March began way back in the 60s. And the sister doc there I had communicated with while she was still in medical school in Chicago, and she had opened her clinic, and I spent a few days playing with her and met the folks there. And when I got ready to leave, I said goodbye to the folks in the waiting room. And they said, you can't go. I said, oh, yes, I have to finish up being a doctor. Oh, it doesn't matter. You don't have to finish. (laughs) Just stay and help. So it was like a call from the people. I got back to school, wrote letters to little towns in the area because I was a health course scholarship recipient. I had to be in a medically deprived area, which is practically the whole state. So that wasn't any problem at all. But I heard back from only one place, and it turned out afterwards that that was the only place with enough population to actually have a mayor, 
but they didn't tell me they had a clinic, and I didn't tell them I was a nun, so we were even. <laughs> so I came on down to interview with them and told them if they were, you know, at disease, having a nun as their doctor, that I could look someplace else. And the old one, they said, and they loosened up some city revenue money to fix up the building, which had been here since '64. We're now talking. Yeah, 82. I was reading about that. It's interesting when you, you know, when you got there, the building was shuttered, and literally, I think in one of the articles I read, there were still segregated waiting rooms. Oh yeah. Um, one of the things was to get past the racial barrier, which meant that I could. We were taught to look at a patient straight on and observe their face and, you know, pick up clues as possible, trouble like the thyroid might be enlarged and all that sort of thing. And they were extremely nervous when I looked at them because they knew what happened to Emmett Till. This is Emmett Till's territory. Emmett Till was killed the year I graduated from high school. And I still remember the pictures in Love magazine. And so I had to change how I examined people. I examined them from the side, talked with them. One guy, I asked him to take off his shirt so I could listen, and he says, Oh, doctor, I never had such a good examination. But I hadn't done anything except ask him to take off his shirt. But in any case, as time went on, and they realized I wasn't going to disappear into the moonlight like other doctors who only stayed three years or less, then I became sort of like an old shoe, and it was, that was really good. People would come to my house as an emergency room anytime, day or night, if I was at the clinic, they'd come there. And we had some pretty bad emergencies, horrible asthma, people with bad, bad cuts that I would sit and sew for hours sometimes. And part of the problem was there wasn't transportation to the hospital, which was in a different county. The ambulance was allowed to come down into our county one mile, which included my office. And I wow. would often say to them, well, the patient's going to meet me at my house. So the rig would come over to my house. I'd hop in and say, well, we, he couldn't come. We'd just go down this way and over that way and around this turn road. And the guys would grin, and they'd keep on going, and we'd go pick up the patient. And what did you do for supplies? Well, I had a stash at the house. We're only eight-tenths of a mile from the clinic. I mean, it wasn't a really big deal. But I sort of kept myself an emergency bag at the house. And after about ten years, I found out that there wasn't that much going on. A kid came in with a horrible cold to my house, and I looked for the stuff I was going to give him, and doggone, it was outdated by a year. I said, holy moly, i got to go pick up some medicine. So I dragged everybody over to the clinic and treated the kid over there. And then there was the night, it was a November night, pouring down rain, thunderstorming like I'll get out, and a car pulled into my backyard, and I hear this sound, baby, baby, honk, 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 baby, baby. I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I sleep downstairs, and the sister, who's my nurse, clinic coordinator, sleeps downstairs also. So we beat it out the door into the rain, and I got in the back seat, and here's this lady leaning against the opposite door, and she says, uh, my name is so-and-so, and this is my fifth pregnancy, and I'm having twin boys. I thought, oh, good. And so there's the first kid right there. Oh, my God. About as big as my hand. I thought, oh, man, this is going to be tough. So we got the clamps. We got the cord cuts. My sister Coralie, my nurse, took her into the kitchen where Sister Joanne, the counselor who sleeps upstairs, was busy putting towels into the oven to warm them. So she wrapped him up and took care of the baby in there, and I stayed in the car with four other children, the driver, pouring down rain, thunderstorm, and another baby with feet coming. And I thought, now look, we, we can't do this. Yeah, I'm allowed to come feet first. You've got to turn around. But, of course, he couldn't turn around by then. And uh, by then the police had found the ambulance, and they brought him to us. So we got Mom into the ambulance and the other kid and Sister Corley into the rig, too, and they went on up the road. And uh, I went back up later and picked her up. But the second child coded on the way to the hospital, made it. So the mom has now two very retarded wow. children. 
But, you know, I've delivered probably 18 babies in adverse circumstances, and probably about five have died. But, you know, it's much less. It's better. Yeah. It's better now. Well, there's someone actually there to help these patients through the delivery. Dr. Brooks, I'd love to talk a little bit about the kinds of lessons that you think you've learned as you've practiced in Tutwiler that may be useful to pass on for other physicians and medical professionals listening, the kinds of things you've seen, in particular things you just talked about with respect to making do with what you've got in tough circumstances. Oh, that's kind of a big order here. I think, <laughs> I think one of the things that I learned was my color disappeared and I became part of everybody. The other thing that happened was I became part of the family in a way. They could entrust me with stories that they wouldn't tell anybody else and knew that I wouldn't spread them around. The other thing was that my training had been in holistic medicine, not treating just the disease, but treating the patient, treating the circumstances. So if somebody put their leg through the porch because the board was no good and the termites had had feast on it, and they came in with cuts and stuff or possibly a break, it wasn't just stopping at the leg. It was continuing to the house and seeing if we could find some volunteers to help fix it. And, of course, people were living in these awful squatter shacks at that time. Now we have 42 habitat houses, and we're so proud of them. We didn't build those. They were an offshoot of our Tutwiler Community Education Center, which is an offshoot of the Tutwiler Clinic, which was helped with a Kellogg grant. But the thing that is so neat is I love what I'm doing. I'm crazy about it. And I'm probably crazy, period, but it's it's so energizing to be able to participate a little bit in helping folks become better. The biggest deal is empowering people. And when we first came, we taught GED after clinic. We closed the clinic and we'd open the waiting room and put tables up and teach GED until around 8 at night. And we ended up getting a lot of people through their GED course, which was wonderful because the year that I came was the year the state of Mississippi passed a law that said children had to attend school to age seven and the next year to age eight. And I thought, oh, man, this can't be the USA. But it was. It's amazing to hear you talk about that and the notion of empowering patients. It sounds like in addition to GED education, you're doing work in the area of prevention and education. Well, we're trying. It's a big deal to convince somebody that their mouth is their responsibility. Yeah. And what goes in it, you know, my my 350-pound ladies look at me like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have a lot of fun with that. But this year, for the first time in the winter months when folks came in for their routine visits, I'm seeing people who've actually lost weight. What do you attribute that to? Is it I attribute it to people actually listening, to yeah. doing some things that I suggest, but also it's more public. And I think people are beginning to realize it isn't just this one little voice squawking in the corner of Tallahatchie County. Things like uh, what Michelle Obama is trying to do across the yes. country, I imagine. Yeah. Yes, big deal. It's a wonderful deal. And one of the things that is going on in our office is because of the holistic bent that we have here, we have a special counselor. She's a licensed practical counselor, and she has done marvelous things with people. We were able to get the services of an optometrist who comes once a month, gave us a slit lamp, dentist gave us an operatory, and we were gifted by a grant from Extension Society for a panoramic digital x-ray, and we have a podiatrist who drives up from the coast every quarter to do our diabetic feet. And if you wanted to use this opportunity to share your voice 
with the physicians across the country and other healthcare professionals. What would you love to tell them? You know, 73% of our budget is donations, and roughly 70% of our patients have no way of paying us. So we rely on other folks to help us. Most recently, someone is giving us a 500MA x-ray machine, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am. We are doing everything we can to help people need less medicine by improving their own health. The stopping smoking stuff is, <laughs> is a big deal. We have diabetic classes. I think to take a look at the folks who come who can't pay, sometimes those folks are the most challenging because they're the sickest. There's something in me that prevents me from sending people away, and I think it's because I'm a sucker. I figure I'll enroll them in the Pearly Gates insurance policy because it's the best policy around. It matures at the death of the doctor. When you stand before the Pearly Gates and God says, oh, hey, I know you, come on in. It doesn't sound like you have any desire to stop practicing soon, which is a great thing for patients and for the community. Who comes behind you, and how do you inspire others to come help? You know, every time I have a medical student, I say, you can come and take my practice, and they all have their own plans, which I really respect, and I understand that because that's where I was years ago. I was able to obtain the help of a second doctor who has now got his green card, and he's from Nepal, Dr. Betwal. He's wonderful to work with, and we've enjoyed so much having him on our staff. I don't know what the future is, obviously, since now he's got his green card, has a family of two children in grade school, and uh, his wife is also in nursing school, so I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Obviously, I need somebody to pick up the reins and keep going. We do have a nurse practitioner helping us, and she's my age. She's just a month younger than myself. So we, uh, you know, we keep on going here. But I'm hoping that there will always be someone who's interested in the poor. There is one other doctor in the county besides us. It's a county of 14,000, probably less than that now because of the out-migration of people. But it's a small county, but it's full of some really fantastic people. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Ann Brooks, who practices as she has since her graduation at the Rural Tutwiler Clinic in Tutwiler, Mississippi, for joining us today on Voices from American Medicine, as well as thanking the Mississippi State Medical Association for nominating Dr. Brooks to appear on the program. Dr. Brooks, I um, really appreciate your time and your insight and your inspiration. Thanks. Thank you, Gary. I'm delighted. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.